0: Good evening, lovely to see you all here at Holy Trinity tonight. My name is Matthew, I'm one of the uh, congregation here at Holy Trinity, and uh, my wife and Rebecca have been had the pleasure of being here for the last 18 months now. Tonight we are thinking about, uh, he says, is he looking around for his clicker? There he is. I'm on, I'm on the ball, trust me. Uh, with friends like these is our topic for tonight. We're going to be thinking here tonight about these two very, very different characters. Peter disowning Jesus and Judas then hanging himself after his betrayal. But first, we're going to open with a prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that we can meet freely tonight in discussing your word, in discussing the events that took place 2,000 years ago, and yet which resound through the ages and which have lessons for us even today. We thank you and ask that tonight you will open up your word afresh to to each of us. Amen. So tonight we are thinking about friendship. Our topic is with friends like these. And the Bible's got an awful lot to say about friendship. Both Peter and Judas were disciples of Jesus. They were two of the twelve. Friendship is very much an integral part of being human. Both with each other but also friendship between us and God. Jesus laid down his life for us, his friends, as recalled in John 15. He says this, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now, it has to be said, this is quite an unlikely friendship. And that's what we're going to be thinking about for the next few moments. This was a very unlikely friendship. The Son of God, perfect in every way, and some weird little fleshy creatures that can't stop making a mess of things it's quite a significant gap there between the two parts in this friendship. And certainly, there are many unlikely friendships Uh, we can find if we spend enough time trawling online. We can find the kitten and the guinea pig developing quite a nice little friendship there. We can find the cheetah and the dog, which I quite like that one. Uh, What have we got? We've got... Oh, yes, the, um, the mouse and the duckling. Getting a little piggyback there. Uh... The, well, the yes, the giraffe and the zebra. Now, if you spent as much time as I have staring at this one, your eyes do start to go a bit funny. Uh, what else? We, I think there's another one. Uh, we have the deer and the lion. I prefer to think of this one as the lion on a diet picture, where, like me, it thinks that just having a little lick of the chocolate will not add any calories. Um, perhaps that's what we've got. Uh, maybe it's much more innocent. Maybe it's, it's a friendship they're developing. And, of course, some of you will have guessed this. The Lion and the Lamb. Had to just be a little bit cheesy there. My apologies. But the Bible has plenty of advice about friendship and plenty of descriptions of it. Some of it warns against bad company, corrupting good character. 1 Corinthians 15, Proverbs 22. Some of the scriptures encourage us to forgive each other, just as God has forgiven us. To have compassion, gentleness, humility, and patience with each other so that we can love and be united with each other. Colossians 3 has quite a bit to say on that. Thinking back to the Old Testament, we get Job. Job's friends had such great intentions when they set out to comfort him but they didn't really understand how God works and frankly ended up making things a whole lot worse. There are some other wonderful gems in, in Proverbs. We've got, uh, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. And the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The very fact that so much of Scripture focuses on helping us to learn about what good friendship is, really should emphasize how important it is that we get our friendships right, both in the people that we choose to associate with and in the way that we are towards our friends. In our two passages tonight, we see two huge betrayals, huge betrayals of friendship, but with two very different outcomes. We're going to compare Peter... Who repents, believes, and is pardoned, with Judas, who repents, despairs, and is ruined. Now, bear with me, but we're going to deal with them in reverse order. So, if you've got your Bibles out, we're going to start at the top of uh, chapter 27. And we're just going to remember that everything we're discussing tonight takes place in the context of the last bit that Pete read to us, that even in the smallest details, The events of the Passion fulfilled God's foretold purposes. Judas enters our passage when Jesus Jesus has just been condemned to die. But within the preceding ten years, the Romans had taken from the Jews the power of capital punishment. So they had to meet again and decide what to do with Jesus. Jesus is handed over to Pilate. Around 100 years earlier, Judea had been conquered by Pompey and ever since been tributary to Rome. And at this point in the story, they were subject to the government of the president of Syria. Now, sometimes his procurators, uh, Pilate in this case, would hold the whole presidential power. Now, Roman writings about Pilate of the, around this time suggest that he was arrogantly superior Jealous and very much unable to be appeased. The Jews didn't like him, but given that they no longer had the power to put Jesus to death themselves, they now had a use for him. Jesus is bound and led away in a sort of triumph. Through Jerusalem's streets, those of you who were here a couple of weeks ago when Jason showed us uh, this very similar map, we're going to be going, and I'm going to need Adam's help for this one, we're going from the House of Caiaphas in the very bottom left-hand corner. Adam's going to very delicately there show us with the nice little scrolling, scrolling mouse pointer. Uh, we're going from there, within the uh, just outside of the, kind of the Essene quarter, and we're going right the way up, going for a nice bit of a wander, uh, all the way through to Pilate's house, right in the very top uh, portion, just where Adam's pointer is now. Do another nice little circle, please, Adam, that'll be... Excellent, thank you. There we go. So it's quite a nice little trek. It's roughly, we're we're talking about nearly a mile in total that he would have been led through that time. Now this Jesus then, that we're discussing, who came to be the saviour of both the Jews and the Gentiles, because of the current circumstances, ultimately ends up being crucified by a collusion of the two. It's not just down to one of them. Judas, meanwhile, is starting to realize the magnitude of the betrayal that he's done. He's seeing Jesus being condemned. The money that he's been paid gets thrown back at the chief priests and the elders. And how awful it is that, Jude, that Judas, who physically walked with Jesus, didn't really know him, didn't really understand what it was that Jesus was going to come to do. What we can't know at this point is exactly what Judas expected to happen. Perhaps he expected Jesus to escape. As far as he was concerned, Christ would have the honour. He would magically get out of the situation, while he, Judas, would have the money. No harm. Now, it's easy to forget that the disciples didn't really get the foretold crucifixion. And bear in mind as well that by this point in the story, all the disciples have abandoned Jesus in some way, shape, or form. When Judas sees that the escape isn't going to happen, he realizes with horror what he's done. The word that's translated in our story as seized with remorse is variably translated into English as Judas repented himself was filled with remorse, or changed his mind. The, the Greek word, um, metamelomai, oh, me, I practice this so much, uh, metamelomai, uh, is much rarer in Scripture than a, a, a synonym of that, um, metanoeo. Now, one source suggests that that latter term, metanoeo, is the nobler and fuller term, something that's m- much more expressive of moral action and moral issues. Instead, the word that Matthew chooses to use in describing Judas's actions seems to stop short of that. It's not this full-blown repentance. It's not that full-blown part. When Jesus, in chapter 4 of Matthew, uh, says that repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, the word that Matthew is using there is, is a very different one. He's using the fuller term of repentance rather than the term that he's using to describe Judas. But there's certainly some form of, of regret or remorse on Judas's part. Thirty pieces of silver looked pretty fantastic when it was being offered, but now it's just money for betraying innocent blood. Jesus' words are starting to ring true. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What do we know of Judas's change of heart? Well, to his credit, he makes restitution. He brings back the silver. You certainly can't make good, you can't repent and still hold on to what you gained unjustly. It doesn't work. The very act of making good can cause others to also take notice and repent, so that's a vital part of the process of, of repentance, making good. Next up, verse four, He confesses Jesus' innocence. He stands up in defense of Jesus to those whom he has just handed over Jesus to be condemned. To his own shame, he confesses his betrayal of innocent blood, but he doesn't confess any sin like greed that led him to do it. He does take all the sin upon himself. He doesn't try to blame the chief priests. He doesn't try to say, oh, you convinced me to do this. He takes it upon himself. But his confession was to people. It wasn't to God. The chief priests, well, their reaction, if we forget for a moment that they're meant to be chief priests, it's quite understandable in human terms. So what? Why should we care? It's your problem. This very much an isolationist approach, this idea that, hey, your sin is your issue, it's not mine, it's what we see all around us. It means nothing to them to see other people's sin. If there's guilt here, it's your problem, sir. As Jesus said, and it's recorded in uh, John chapter 9, Judas's was indeed the greater sin, but it doesn't mean that these guys were guilt-free. In fact, we're told in Matthew 27, verse 25, that the whole generation that betrayed Jesus shared in this. But stubborn sinners don't want to be convicted otherwise, and certainly it's the case that the resolvedly impenitent scorn and despise the penitent. Judas despairs. Maybe, maybe just maybe, if the chief priests had stayed the prosecution, maybe we get a different outcome for Judas. But there's no easing of his conscience and he withdraws into a solitary place. I'm sure many of us can relate to that idea that actually that is the worst thing you can do in that circumstance. How in our darkest moments, far away from anyone to help us get out of it, help us process it, help us contextualize, in those darkest moments all alone, how magnified what we do can seem, how there can seem like no escape, how there can seem like no way out. If Judas had gone to Christ at this point or to one of the disciples, maybe, maybe, just maybe, he might have found some comfort. Maybe. Maybe he might have found some relief or, dare I even suggest, had he gone to Christ, maybe he would have found forgiveness in that. But he abandons himself to despair and becomes his own executioner. Under Jewish law, false witnesses who... uh, Came forward, would get, ultimately get the penalty that they had intended to inflict on other people. But since the chief priests aren't interested, Judas hangs himself. Scripture does not suggest in any way that the betrayal of Jesus Christ itself was unpardonable. We know that Jesus forgave betrayers, he forgave murderers, but Judas's fate was sealed by despairing of God's mercy when he resorted to self-murder over the forgiveness of God. We're going to pause for a moment just to consider two questions. Firstly, is there anything in Judas that I see in myself? For example, do I despair at my failings instead of trusting my Lord? And if I do despair, what's the outcome of that despair? Is it ruin, like Judas? The second thing to consider with Judas is what's my 30 pieces of silver? What tempts me from the path that I tread? What threatens my friendship with Jesus? Maybe it's not greed. Maybe it's not 30 pieces of silver. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's complacency. The, actually, I'm quite happy oh, please, Jesus, don't ask me to do that. That's just more hassle. Is that my 30 pieces of silver that ultimately takes me down a path where I'm ignoring my friendship with him? Take just a couple of seconds while I refresh. If you want to share that thought with the person next to you, feel free. Judas repented, despaired, was ruined. Part two, we're going to jump back. So come back with me, please, back to uh, chapter 26 and verse 69. We're going to catch up with Peter. While Jesus is in Caiaphas' hall, being baited, as we heard last week, Peter is in the courtyard, waiting uh, among Caiaphas' servants to hear what happens. Jesus is being ridiculed and abused, Peter is being tempted and ensnared. We know from uh, Matthew 16 that Peter had never wanted to see this come to pass. He'd never wanted to see the cross, and he hadn't really prepared himself for it, although it could be argued, how could you really prepare yourself for this? Here he finds himself in this courtyard, worried for Jesus, and being tempted and challenged in three different ways. Firstly, he's accused as being with Jesus the Galilean, and then as with Jesus of Nazareth. Both of these are really scornful. Forgive the analogy, but this is a bit like saying, that Russian Putin. It's that kind of scorn way of saying it. Then he's charged as being one of them, for the benefit of the recording. That's in inverted commas. Because the the Galilean dialect uh, and pronunciation differed so much from the other Jews, he was able to be identified. Now, I'm a speech and language therapy lecturer and pronunciation editor. This fascinates me, and I could do a whole separate kind of tangential thing all about this. But think about the fact that we'd never get away with this today. Can you imagine the reaction if we assumed that everybody with a Scottish accent living in London was a member of the Scottish National Party? Kind of big assumption to be making, but actually I think it raises a much bigger question. Does the way in which we speak reveal us to be a follower of Jesus? Is it obvious to others, from the way in which we speak, okay, maybe not with the accent, because frankly I don't actually know what a Galilean accent sounds like, but just in the way that we speak. Do we demonstrate the features of friendship, the features of love, the features of compassion and grace that reveal us to be a friend of Jesus? Peter, though, he's, as a, once he's charged as a disciple of Christ, denies it. The first time, it's an indirect denial. I don't know what you're talking about. What I find fascinating here is that when Jesus predicted Peter's denials, it included this kind of misrepresentation. If someone accuses us of being a follower of Jesus, and we are, anything other than outright confession is denial. Even if it's a life or death situation. There is an absolute cost to following Jesus. No one ever said that following Jesus would be easy. Jesus himself never said it would be easy. There is a cost to following him. And for some people, for some of our brothers and sisters, maybe for us, the ultimate cost that we may pay for a wholehearted commitment to Jesus Christ may be death. It's only by watching and praying will we be ready to share in Christ's suffering in that way if we are so called. The second charge, Peter's denial, becomes much more overt. I don't know the man. And swears to it with an oath. He's charged with knowing Jesus, this friend that he has followed for three years, whom he has witnessed all these miracles and shared in many of them. Who's heard this revolutionary teaching right from the mouth of Jesus Christ himself, who has been his friend, but says, I don't know him. In Matthew 16, we read that when the disciples were asked directly by Jesus, who do you say I am? It was Peter, of all the disciples, it was Peter that said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Peter, how long ago must that time have seemed? On the third charge, he curses himself and swears, I do not know the man. Even in saying the man, he's distancing himself from Jesus, even just in the way he's referring to it. The swearing and cursing of himself, this isn't profanity, this is invoking a curse upon himself if he's lying. Ironically, that probably made himself sound even more of a liar. Those of you who've got children... I'm sure you might be able to relate to the idea of uh, whether your children protest more vehemently when you ask them something that they did do versus something that they didn't. Did you put worms in the DVD player? No, it wasn't me, I swear. Ten minutes watching Jeremy Kyle or Judge Rinder will give you the same idea, that when people are charged with something that they did do, and they lie about it, the greater the protest over if they had not actually done it. A couple of things to remember then with Peter at this point. We've got to remember, first off, that Peter was an apostle. He was one of those first three. Secondly, that he's already messed up tonight, as far as his friendship with Jesus goes. He dozed off within an hour of Jesus asking him with several other disciples to keep watch in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's already not exactly top of the friendship stakes here. Thirdly, that he's been given fair warning of this. Jesus told him that he was going to deny him on this very night. Fourthly, that he then promised never to deny Jesus on this very night. And fifthly, that he had such ridiculously weak temptation to lie about it. On at least one of these occasions, it was a servant girl who asked him. It's not an official, it's not something that he couldn't just say, oh, she's making it up later. It doesn't actually matter at this point, with at least one of these, if he'd said the truth, he could have walked it back if he'd panicked later on. But instead, three times, he denies knowing Jesus. So as far as friends go, I think we can agree that Peter's not exactly a stunning example tonight so far. Okay, so his denials are in haste, rather than premeditated, like with Judas. Peter panicked. And when the rooster crows, it triggers his memory of the words that Jesus had said. He goes outside and weeps bitterly. So easy to forget that Peter had been a fisherman, a physically tough guy who would have stared down waves, but realising his own ingratitude towards Jesus and the disregard he had for the grace of God humbled him. What brings us back on track? What makes us stop in our day-to-day lives and come back? I have to admit that the confessions that we do every Sunday frequently are a key point in my week for doing exactly this. They make me catch myself from the things that I've done, the things I might even be in the process of doing, and stop and repent. From what we know, Peter's repentance was genuine. We're not told of any... Further denials by Peter after this point. He confessed Jesus openly and often. Christ's death and resurrection would pave the way for Peter's absolution. Now, we make our confessions every Sunday, as we've already done tonight. But what makes the difference between us doing this and anybody else saying sorry for any other reason is that we have absolution through his grace. That's what makes all the difference. The fact that we have absolution through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ makes all the difference. Peter repented. He believed in the saving grace of his Lord and was forgiven. So what's our rooster crow? What is it that catches us? What is it that makes you stop and think? It's a great thing to be able to identify those times in our lives when we are called to stop. And we can stop and that we are challenged to think again as to what we're doing. And do we follow in Peter's footsteps of repenting, believing in that saving grace of the Lord and be forgiven Now, there aren't many events that are addressed by all four Gospels. They're written by different people, different focuses, and different intended audiences. But crucially, Peter's denial is one of them. If we take a quick look here at uh, kind of the things that are covered by the Gospels, this is an abbreviated list of the things that are covered by all four Gospels. Jesus starting his preaching ministry in Galilee. Jesus walking on water the feeding of the 5,000, riding into Jerusalem on a young donkey, the Last Supper is addressed by all four Gospel writers, Jesus being betrayed and arrested, Jesus standing trial before Pilate, Pilate handing over Jesus to be crucified, Jesus dying on the cross and being laid in the tomb, and Jesus rising from the dead. These are linchpin moments in the life of Jesus Christ and they are linchpins in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do. These are things on which so much of our Christian understanding, our understanding of who God is, are predicated on our understanding of these things. So why should Peter's denial count among this group? I believe it's for two reasons. I believe, firstly, that it's because Peter was a warning against abandoning Jesus in the face of persecution. But also, that he was the model for us all to follow. Whether we're Matthew's Jewish audience, Mark's Gentiles and Romans, Luke's Greeks, or or John's Christians throughout the world. According to Matthew and Mark, the very first words that Jesus said to Simon Peter were, follow me. Come, follow me. And at once, he and his brother Andrew left their fishing nets to follow Jesus. Peter was fully human, and he made big mistakes. Not just now, he goes on to make further mistakes. But his repentance each time was genuine. He trusted in God's forgiveness to get back out and do better. Jesus had said that the rock that is Peter, he would build his church upon, and that came to fruition on this betrayal, this person who could not be trusted to not back away from Jesus at the crucial crunch time. In the, in the scriptures that follow, we don't find that Peter was excommunicated for his betrayal of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew that Peter would deny him, and he already had big plans for him. If you get the chance tonight, when you get home, read the end of John where you get to see just how beautiful it is when we hear Jesus walking with Peter, discussing the responsibilities after this point that Peter was being entrusted with from Jesus. And to paraphrase some of Matthew 18, we are to confront those who fall. I'm sure it came up in that conversation between Jesus and Peter later on. But we are to be gracious and forgiving with it. How do we, tonight, respond to being a bad friend of Jesus. When we let him down. Whether it's verbally or physically lashing out at someone, whether it's engaging in behaviour that we really shouldn't, whether it's asserting ourselves arrogantly instead of with humility, or through inaction, failing to actually do something when we should. When we don't take the opportunities to share his friendship, but try and keep it to ourselves. When we realize that we have failed and fallen short of the glory of God once again, how do we react? That's our big question tonight. We rightly look at Jesus as our example for so much of life. He loved. He forgave. He defended. He stood on truth and did not waver. Fantastic things that we can look at Jesus and say, I'm going to try and emulate that. But the one thing that Jesus never did was let himself or his father down. For that, we need some other way, some other way of learning how to handle that. So I'm going to take a bit of inspiration from the O2 campaign, which unfortunately has just finished, the Be More Dog campaign, which many of you may have heard of. Uh, Bizarre campaign, didn't really understand it, but I do like their slogan, Be More Dog. Be more Peter. Peter. Be more, Peter. When we fall, get up. When we go the wrong way, repent. Let us not despair as Judas did. Let us not be weighed down by the guilt of our failure. But to know that we are forgiven. To know that we can get on and get back, get right with the Lord and get back to doing better. Let us stand assured That Jesus has paid the price. As we move into our prayerful response tonight, let us consider three simple things how to enjoy God, how to enjoy forgiveness, and how to enjoy grace. Be more Peter.